Welcome to Steam Powered, where I have conversations with women in Steam to learn a little bit about what they do and who they are. I'm your host, Michelle Ong. My guest today is Kerry Bean. Kerry is a systems engineer at NASA JPL, where she's deputy lead rover planner and helicopter integration engineer. Join us as we talk about the Curiosity Mars rover, Star Wars, and cake decorating. Hello, Kerry. Thank you for joining me today on Steam Powered. It's wonderful to have you on. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, uh, yeah, you studied meteorology at university. Uh, what drew you to that field? Yeah, so I grew up in Texas where you're used to having thunderstorms and hurricanes and all sorts of stuff. And so I was always just kind of naturally drawn to it. I remember being like super scared as a kid during thunderstorms of like, oh, lightning, you know, hi. And then I was like, I just want to learn more about it so I know, you know, what it is, kind of like understand the fear kind of thing. And so that's what really got me interested in meteorology. And I never really knew what I wanted to do with it. I changed my mind a lot of whether I wanted to be, you know, the weather person on TV pointing out your local <laughs> forecast or, you know, um, my family was uh, pretty tied into the Air Force. I was, was living near an Air Force base, so you could be an Air Force meteorology officer or I wanted to be the person that flew into the hurricanes or drove into wow. the tornadoes or all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and then when I... Um, was in high school, my family did a family vacation to Florida, and it just so happened to be the week of the STS-114 space shuttle launch. And that's Ooh. when my love for space started instead of just meteorology. Oh, wonderful. You started meteorology anyway. So when you were studying, like, did you consider doing astronomy or anything else related to space? Yeah. So this, like, really deep space interest started in my uh, – between my sophomore and junior year of high school. And at that point, I didn't really know how I was going to incorporate that. Um, you know, I was like, you know, I went to space camp just to try it out. And, you know, there's so many different options for working in the space industry. You can be the aerospace engineer building the rockets. You can be the astrophysicist studying the stars. You know, there's so many different things you can do. And I finally decided, why don't I go to school for meteorology because it's still very math and sciency based. You know, it's not going to be, if I really do change my mind, I'll still have gotten a lot of the basic math and science down that, you know, then I just have to learn more of the specialization of, you know, the other fields. So when I was about to go to school, um, there was like an event that they called Aggieland Saturday, where they invite all the accepted students to come in and like meet your professors, learn the campus, all that kind of stuff. And it was kind of cold that day. So I was wearing a NASA hoodie. And this one professor in the meteorology department came up to me and said, do you like space stuff? I said, yeah, I love space stuff. It's cool. NASA's so cool. And she's like, well, you should go talk to this Mark Lemon guy. I don't know what he does, but it's space stuff. And, it's <laughs> and so I went home and I like looked up his profile on um, university website. And he's talking about how he like studies weather on other planets. And I'm like, perfect. Oh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Because, you know, I knew, like, Mars had an atmosphere, Jupiter, you know, yeah. all, the, all that kind of stuff. But it didn't occur to me that was something that you could study, you know. That's cool. It worked so, out. So, <laughs> yeah, that worked out perfectly. So when you, oh, when you spoke to that supervisor and started doing stuff, I guess, with Mars meteorology, um, did you think about where you'd be going with that, like pursuing that area of study? 
Yeah, so he had me involved in operating Spirit and Opportunity literally my first week of college. <gasps> oh my goodness. Yeah, so it was like Friday of my first week of classes. He invites me into his office and I get to listen in to the Mars River planning meetings about what kind of science observations they're planning wow, that day. Wow, that's amazing. I had no idea what was going on. There was a bazillion <laughs> acronyms flying around, but I was like, this is really cool. I want to be involved in this. And so he got me started with a couple little research projects using spirit and opportunity data. And then uh, he sent me to my first planetary science conference, which was over spring break. So, you know, most freshmen, I guess, go out and party. I went to a scientific conference instead. Go me. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sure that was more beneficial, though. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So at the end, you know, I had gathered like all these questions. And so I spent like a whole day pestering him with questions after I got back. And he was like, well, you know, there's this Phoenix Mars lander that's landing this summer on Mars, and I'm in charge of the camera on it. Do you want to come work on the camera? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I got to work on um, the Phoenix Mars lander, which kind of went near the North Pole of Mars in the summer of 2008. And it actually landed one year to the day from when I graduated high school. <gasps> so, Goodness. and I was the person in mission control as the images were coming down, the person responsible for like putting them up on the screen for the rest of the team to look at. So that's kind of oh, a, that's amazing. You know, my mom said she was having like a lot of cognitive dissonance of like seeing me on the screen, you know, with the <laughs> TV in my face is like, how is that my daughter? <laughs> but that's wonderful that you, you're able to get such direct experience doing all of this stuff while you were still at college. That's great. Yeah. And so I, you know, I just completely fell in love with operating spacecraft that summer. Um, I still involved uh, meteorology. So part of what I did with the cameras was actually looking for clouds or dust devils or other meteorology phenomena occurring on the surface. And so it was really fascinating to kind of like combine them of like, okay, well, I know what I'm trying to look for. So now I need to be able to communicate that with the engineers to take the right kind of science observation to continue on. And so um, I got really good at that. And once, you know, Phoenix was done and, and all that was kind of wrapped up, it only lasted basically the summer and a little bit into the fall um, before it got too cold. And uh, he's like, well, you know, there's this other rover called Curiosity that they're going to send soon. You know, I am also working on the cameras for that. Do you want to come do that? <laughs> like, yeah. Goodness. Um, yeah, I actually got to work on uh, Curiosity as well for several years. That's wonderful. And so all of that work that you've been doing and that experience, that's what got you into working directly for JPL? Yeah, so it was really um, while I was there uh, for Curiosity, because when a mission first lands for the first what they call 90 sols, a sol being a Martian day, it's about 40 minutes longer than Earth Day. So, you know, it was close to three months or so. They have everyone located at JPL. So as a science team person, I got to go to JPL and essentially live, you know, in Pasadena, work at JPL every day. And, you know, towards the end, it was getting close to when I would be done with my master's program. And so I was like, hey, JPL, if I was to finish in like May, August, you know, timeframe, uh, would I be able to you know, get a job at JPL? And that was during the uh, major recession of a couple of years ago. So I was told we would love to, but we can't. <laughs> um, so I started actually looking around and I 
had actually uh, gotten contact with someone I met on Phoenix, who is now a professor in Canada, and they weren't having the same issue. So I was about to go uh, do a PhD program with him when JPL called me last second and said, things have changed. When can you fly oh. out for an interview? Fantastic. So two weeks before my master's thesis defense, I was on a plane to Pasadena, did a full day of interviews, immediately flew back. <gasps> And, you know, defended, I got a phone call the day after my defense saying, you know, we need a few more weeks to figure it out, but we're going to offer you some sort of job on some sort of mission. We haven't quite figured it out. (laughs) And at the same time, I got my acceptance letter to the PhD program with a week deadline to respond. So I called JPL and said, I have to know in a week. (laughs) And sure enough, like 4 p.m. of the 5 p.m. deadline on the last day. And that's when I decided to go to JPL. (laughs) <laughs> and, of course. Uh, so I started at JPL actually on the one year landing anniversary of Curiosity. So that way it'll always be easy for me to remember. <laughs> you know, they let me have a choice of start dates. So I was like, well, that's the obvious one to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I actually started out on the Dawn mission. I left Mars for a couple of years and that was really interesting. So, you know, I kind of mentioned before about the you know what kind of science you want to do, and then you have to work with the engineers to figure out you know, how to actually make the spacecraft do that. Well, that's exactly what I was doing on Dawn. And a lot of the process was kind of the same from the rovers. Um, but with the rovers, you're kind of planning almost day to day. Whereas with Dawn, you're planning like weeks at a time. So it was a little bit of a different time scale, but the same kind of thought process went into it. And so I found that really fun, um, kind of, you know, even though you know the asteroids that Dawn explored didn't really have atmospheres, you know the the principle was still the same. I could understand the scientists, understand what their goal was, and then work with the engineers to actually you know implement it, make sure it worked, all that kind of stuff. So That's it was quite brilliant. fun. Yeah, that is very fun. So with the your experience in meteorology and the maths that you're doing, they're directly but indirectly related. So was there any additional? kind of training or learning that you had to do to be able to fill those gaps? Yeah. So I ended up doing a lot of like reading documentation. You know, there are procedures on how to do the steps. And so I would go through and say, well, no, this procedure hasn't been updated in a while. You know, this tool doesn't exist anymore. This step doesn't exist anymore because it's been automated or something like that. So um, one of my first jobs was actually to go through and say, what is actually true of this job? What is not true anymore? You know, (laughs) figure it out. Um, and one of the interesting things that I learned on Dawn was working with test beds. So whenever we have a spacecraft, we always build kind of a backup duplicate here on earth. Um, so in the case of something that's like orbiting, like Dawn, you know, you know, it's just a rack of computers, right? It's not a, you know, actual spacecraft, (laughs) um, with the case of the rovers, we try and build as accurate a model as we can. And then another model that weighs here on Earth, what it would on Mars, so you can get better mobility testing. And so on Dawn, I got to use that rack of computers and simulate and test things. And I found I really enjoyed that aspect as well. And so that's something I was able to carry forward once I moved back into working on the rovers, um, was working on all these different test beds. So, you know, I I was never a hands-on engineer by training. So having to (laughs) learn kind of that, you know, ESD, you know, don't shock the spacecraft, you know, (laughs) jackets, plug in, like all that stuff, you know, that was completely foreign to me. Um, Yeah. So I've definitely picked up a cool, a couple skill sets while at JPL. That's, yeah, that's amazing. So was that testbed building stuff 
before or after you built R2-D2? <laughs> It was actually about the same time. Yeah, so um, I've been pretty obsessed with Star Wars for a while. And um, there was a big convention here in Anaheim. And I had already kind of started being interested in R2-D2 building. And then what happened was they have this whole room at the Star Wars convention that's nothing but fan-built droids. So imagine as like an R2-D2 robot fan walking into a room and seeing like 120 <laughs> of them all bleeping and blooping and lighting up and driving around and all that. And I just kind of lost my mind. Oh. I was like, I have to have my own like right now. Um, so I started building my own R2-D2 right then. Um, it took about <laughs> two years. <laughs> it's, it's not a quick process. Um, and I'm actually one of the, the quickest who have built it. Most people <laughs> take a lot longer than two years. That's motivation. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was a really interesting process because, you know, I didn't have any of that hands-on training. I took like one shop class in middle school. You know, that yeah. was about the extent of me using <laughs> power tools or anything like that. And so um, that was that was really fun. Um and it kind of has gained me a lot of like credibility among the engineers because I can understand <laughs> like what they're talking about with like, you know, the, the thread size on screws or, uh, you know, understanding blueprints or things like that yeah. that I wouldn't have necessarily had experience with. Um, and that of course, anytime cool. I take R2D2 to JPL, all of them come like running out of the building. <laughs> or, like, you know, most of the time he's like, you know, the head is off and everyone's inside looking at all the electronics and all the, yeah. you know, how'd you machine this and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So <laughs> that's awesome. So you actually did the electronics and the circuitry as well as yourself? Uh, so I didn't do that part. That's the part I'm like not quite as familiar with. Um, and even to this day, I actually have some help. I call them my JPL Jawas, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, with like 6,000 of the best engineers on the planet. And if you say, hey, can someone come over and help my R2? <laughs> more than willing to come over and, you know, do this as a, as a hobby. Yeah. So, you know, I actually have a back panel um, where I have everyone sign that has helped work on my R2-D2. So everyone gets credit, you know, if oh, they helped me, you know, build it, uh, paint it, sand it, whatever it was, they get to, to sign. That's fantastic. It's a little team building project. <laughs> That's so cool. So, yeah, getting back to your day job, um, what does a rover planner actually do? Yeah, so uh, my, <laughs> kind of, <laughs> um, my current job, yeah, so the formal title is rover planner. Um, the informal title is just Mars rover driver. Um, we also operate the robotic arm as well. And so um, when I was kind of wrapping up on Dawn, I was interested in coming back to working on Opportunity because, you know, my first love was the Mars rovers, right? And so um, I started working on some of the more engineering ops roles on Opportunity and kind of worked my way up until I was like in charge of the day-to-day -day planning for Opportunity. And one of the things I hadn't done, uh, you know, I was doing almost every single role, but the last one left was Rover Planner. And um, I didn't really think that I could do it because most of the people at that point who had done it were PhDs in robotics, computer science, you know, that kind of level of, you know, I wasn't anywhere close to that. And um, one of the women who worked on the rover um, in that team came up to me one day and said, hey, you know, let's go for a walk. And so we're walking around JPL. She's like, have you ever considered being a rover planner? Like, <laughs> well, 
not really. I mean, I would love to, but you know, it it hasn't been uh, you know on my radar as something I could do. And she's like, well, you know, we've seen how you've been able to operate in all these other roles, um, and we think that you you know would take the time to learn the robotic side and that you could do it. And so it was really uh, interesting. So they started out, you learn what's called the downlink side. Um, so all the telemetry coming back from the rover, you know, the currents, the temperatures, the voltages, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, you have to learn, you know, what's safe, what's not safe. We told the rover to do this, but maybe it slipped too much. So it actually did this or, you know, learn all those kinds of reactions before they would let you actually, you know, make the commands to send to the rover. Yeah. And so um, I had transitioned, gotten certified for doing the downlink part and was working my way through the very extensive process to get certified for, you know, sending the commands when we lost contact with Opportunity. My one and only time that I got to send commands was to operate the robotic arm for Opportunity and I got to place it down on the surface um, yeah. to do some science. And um, so I was like fairly close to being done. You know, it usually takes two to three years to train for this role. And I was about two, two and a half years in. Um, yeah. And so uh, at the time, um, so Curiosity also has rover planners because they, you know, also have a robotic arm and they drive around. And so they said, well, um, they have like a formal class for rover drivers. So they have like a batch that come in all at once, take formal classes, you have homework, all that kind of stuff. And they normally only have four at a time. And they were like, well, we've already picked the four, but you almost finished learning on opportunity. And, you know, the systems are pretty much the same. The software is pretty similar. Why don't you just come finish your training with us? Yeah. So I did. <laughs> so I started on Curiosity um, fall of 2018. And um, yeah, it was a very interesting experience. You know, there's formal classes, there's homeworks, you're doing labs. Um, but, you know, a lot of the software is the same. A lot of the people were the same. So they already knew me and kind of you know, knew what I knew already. Yeah. They could point out the differences of like, oh, well, this changed. Uh, you'll need to do this instead. You oh, know, cool. all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And so um, I've worked my way up now to actually being a co-deputy lead rover driver for Curiosity. Congratulations. So in addition to, yeah, thank you. So instead of doing, you know, just the day-to-day -day work, I'm also involved in a lot more of the like leadership management side of the team. And I've been doing that for just a couple weeks now, but um, I'm pretty excited about that. You know, who yeah. knew a meteorologist could be a rover driver? <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Like, but you've put all the hard work into it to get there. So obviously that's very cool. So with each rover, are you only certified for that specific rover or is it transferable between rovers? <laughs> so you are technically only certified for that rover, but typically the roles and the process are similar enough that if you are certified on one rover, it's pretty quick to turn around and get certified on the other rover. Oh, um, that's pretty cool. We'll just kind of focus on here's the differences, you know, go <laughs> yeah yeah that's awesome and yeah you're also a helicopter integration engineer on the perseverance and that would be for the ingenuity drone right yeah so um i'm not like flying the helicopter or anything but okay. my role is technically from the rover's perspective so um the helicopter is kind of its own component and so yeah. my job and um, there's a couple other of us as well we want to um Kind of be that interface between the helicopter and the rover so you know 
there's constraints how you know where can we fly the helicopter but the rover has to take us to that spot you know drop us off you know move away act as the you know talk base station um and so um you know we also want to make sure that the rover activities reflect the helicopter plan so you know in our planning tools are all the correct parameters in there like all that kind of stuff so that's kind of my job is is interfacing between the two projects yeah that's amazing and uh, you were saying that with your earthside duplicates like you have the earthside duplicate for the drone as well so sort of so it's not as easily flyable here on earth um you know we had to like the big vacuum chamber to uh, get it to fly and so um we we do have some models um we're actually in the middle of a test right now of, you know, how are we actually going to deploy the helicopter? And yeah. so we're testing, you know, how do we want to take pictures of the helicopter um, when it's under the rover? How do we want to drive away with the helicopter there? Like figuring all that kind of components out, you know, we, yeah. we knew the concept, we kind of knew the plan. Now it's getting into the nitty gritty details of how actually are we going to do this on Mars in a couple months? Yeah. So is that all like theoretical or... In the gravity chamber, are you able to simulate that, or is that going to be all like, like computerized analysis? So a lot of it was kind of computerized analysis. Um, you know, we're not able to change gravity, but we can change yeah. the atmosphere um, in the vacuum chamber. So we were able to get it down to Mars pressures, and we were able to get the helicopter to fly. So oh, that's um, cool. I have high confidence we will be able to fly it on Mars. That's awesome. Yeah, just yeah trying to visualize and conceptualize all of that stuff in an environment you can't replicate. That's awesome and very difficult. <laughs> That's cool. So with all the projects that you're working on, how, like, what does a day in the life of you look like when you're having to work on all these different, well, yeah, completely different projects? I always joke it's actually pretty similar to any other desk job. I've got, you know, emails and spreadsheets and, you know, documents and all sorts of stuff, right? <laughs> you know, the, that's a lot of the day-to-day -day is just kind of normal office style work. Yeah. Um, but it's interspersed with, you know, working on these Mars rovers where really you are just kind of in the zone for the day. You get to ignore everything else. You know, you have a goal for the day of we want the rover to do X, Y, and Z today. And the whole team has to come together to make that happen. Um, and that's actually what I find I'm usually happiest because it's still very technical work but it's social. That's one of the things yeah. that actually kind of drove me away from pursuing like PhD science kind of person was I still really enjoy, you know, the technical science -y aspect, but I really miss the social aspect. And yes. so by working in rover operations, I'm still getting that science-y technical part, but I'm getting to do it with a group of people. And so that's the part I find the most rewarding about working on the, the rover ops. Fantastic. So yeah, just thinking about um, yeah, doing all of this stuff kind of remotely. How do you do all of this remotely? Like, um... yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I was uh, part of the team that actually figure out, had to figure out how to do it remotely. Because yeah. um, normally we're in a specific room at JPL and, you know, everyone kind of has their little like corner of the room. But, you know, at JPL, the rover planners have like, big monitors and we have special 3d glasses that we can use to view the terrain in 3d exactly, as we're yeah. practicing driving the rover over it and all sorts of stuff how do you do that at home um, yeah so i have two monitors and uh 
one of the things with the rover planners is we're kind of like in our own little corner usually because we have a lot of discussion within ourselves about how we're going to do activities, but there's yeah. also the whole rest of the team. So when I'm on shift now remotely, I have to wear two different headsets on two different meetings for the whole day. <laughs> oh my and goodness. So that, that's an interesting like component because in the room, you're pretty used to being able to like tune out the other room until someone yeah. yells like your name or something. Um, yeah. But here you constantly have like two conversations going on in your head. And so it could be quite oh, a mess. Nuts. Um, and since we were able to, you know, we're not able to bring home our, uh, my cat's about to walk in front of the screen. I'm sorry. Hey, that's awesome. <laughs> Hi. Hello, cat. <laughs> this is Misty. Ah. Um, here, let me grab He's a cutie. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, normally we would have these like crazy stereo glasses. Well, we couldn't bring that home. So we actually have reverted to using normal red blue glasses for our stereo vision <laughs> um, so i actually had these, you know, these nice plastic ones um, my advisor gave them to me when i was working on all these images yeah. that i was processing as an undergrad and so it's kind of funny that you know i kept it as like a memory and now i'm having to use it day to day again so yeah so do, uh, like is it just did you have to get office computer stuff to be kind of shipped out to you or are you just using your home stuff so Right before uh, we shut down, they actually had folks come by and like sign out all the equipment. Yeah. Um, so they distributed it um, to us, you know, at the very beginning of lockdown. But yeah, everything else, it's just, you know, whatever you can make do with. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Like, how much of a challenge does that create for not being able to have access to all of that stuff? It's actually not too bad. Um, you know, we certainly had kind of growing pains at first of just trying to figure out you know, how do you manage having two different mute buttons for two different meetings? <laughs> you know, just kind of, you know, how do we share what we're doing? Because at least the rover planners were used to being in that corner and being able to just like roll over yeah. and look at someone else's screen, right? And so how do you share what we're doing all the time and you know, just all that kind of stuff. And now we've got it pretty well um, figured out. And so, um, you know, it, it took some growing pains, but I think we've we've got it all figured out. That's awesome. Yeah. Having to do that for next year, that's going to be, <laughs> that's going to be rough. Yep. So um, what's the next milestone that you guys have been working on for the next projects that you're on? Yeah. So for Curiosity, we're still going up Mount Sharp, which is kind of our main goal. And we just wrapped up kind of our finishing touches on what was called the clay unit. And so we actually did a really special experiment, which the acronym for is TEMA. And um, we actually have like a chemical laboratory inside the rover. And this particular experiment, we can only do twice in the entire mission. We only brought enough resources to do it twice. And mm. so they finally deemed it important enough that we did the first experiment for this <gasps> while all remote. Um, nice. And so that took a lot of coordination and, and understanding. So that was kind of fun um, to, you know, do this like mission milestone. Yeah. Completely remote. It was kind of cool. <laughs> Um, and so we just wrapped up that campaign and, you know, yeah. the scientists are still looking into a lot of the, the details about what's going on there, but now we've started driving off again so we can continue our route, um, up Mount Sharp. And then of course, Perseverance landing day, um, so yes. that'll be February 18th. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, so that's coming up real quick. Um, it is. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, so you know we're we're putting the the finishing touches on our tools and our processes and all that kind of stuff to make sure we're ready for landing day. And yeah, um, yeah it'll be really fun. Um, it'll be my third time living on Mars time. So oh, nice. uh, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. So what sort of preparations do you need to make for landing day? We essentially want to make sure that the tools have all the capabilities that we need to be able to operate the rover. So these physical tools or program tools? They're all program tools. And so... Um, well, we do what's called thread tests. And so they actually, you know, run a thread of like, we want to practice, you know, making the commands to send to the rover. And so you run through all the steps and all the tools and you say, oh, nope, there was a bug here. And they go back and they fix it. And then we try it again and all that kind of stuff. So that's what we're we're doing a lot of right now is testing. It's almost every week there's a different test going on. And that's we awesome. also do what's called ORTs or operational readiness tests. And that is more to test the personnel. So instead of just testing the tools, make sure that you're also teaching the people that are going to do their job, how to do their job. Yeah. And so it's kind of a, all of that testing is going on right now, making sure everything is all nice and ready. In my head, it was kind of, you'd have to do all that stuff before you send perseverance, but you know, it's, it's cool that you can actually do it while it's in, in motion, while it's traveling. Don't waste time that way. Yeah. So it's just uploaded all the new instructions, all the tools and stuff like uploaded live while it's in transit? Essentially, you know, most of the stuff, it takes years and years to build. So um, it's not like they started until after launch, right? Yeah. And so now that we've launched, they're kind of, they've now kicked into the actual operations. So we're actually able to hire all the personnel that are going to able be able to operate. Ah. So even though the tools may be very well developed at this point, the actual personnel are all brand new. So you need to teach them to use the tools. They're going to find new ways to break the tools and then the tools have to be fixed. <laughs> so it's kind of a feedback loop going on. Yeah. And they're also finishing writing the flight software for when it actually lands on the surface. And so typically, as soon as a rover lands, maybe like a day or two afterwards, they actually do what's called a flight software transition. And so there won't be like any science or anything for a few days while they actually change it from, you know, we're cruising to Mars to we're now on the surface. Nice. Yeah. The rover doesn't need to know how to drive when it's in space, but it needs to know how to drive when it's on the ground, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, it doesn't need to know how to land when it's on the surface, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so they'll, they'll change it out. Um, and then we'll have a period of uh, what's called instrument checkouts, you know, taking the first pictures, you know, using different instruments for the first time, make sure that they work exactly yeah. as we expected them to. And then we're going to do the helicopter flights um, pretty early on. So as soon as the rover's ready, we'll do the helicopter flight. Nice. And then the rover will go on and continue doing science. That's awesome. So how do you handle like the times when it doesn't do what you expect? <laughs> So um, that's actually usually when I find the teams are like at their best is yeah. you know, when they're faced with adversity, right? <laughs> and so we're not ones to easily give up. <laughs> yeah, of course. So, you know, uh, depending on the severity of the problem, you know, you could call in a group of people who may be the experts. Maybe they're the ones that built the system or designed the system. Um, or maybe it's just a, you know, a fluke. Sometimes, you know, the radiation might just hit the computer bit in just the wrong way that it yeah. passes out. It's you know you just clear it and go right. It it just kind of depends on uh what the problem is. 
Yeah. So most of them, it's usually resolvable. Reboot, new software, things like that. Oh, mm-hmm. that's good. I don't know. I'd be so stressed about hardware issues. <laughs> yeah. And that's also where the test beds come in. So yeah. you know, we may, uh, if we want to test out fixing something, we want to try it out here on Earth because it's a lot easier to fix something here on Earth yeah. than to do it in space. That's cool. All right. Well, yeah, that's amazing. So might move on to some of those other questions now. This has been very interesting. So many other questions, but I don't think we'll have time for that. <laughs> um, so what hobby or interest do you have that is most unrelated to your field of work? So uh, I think the answer there is cake decorating. Um, <gasps> yes. <laughs> so my mom um, was always really frustrated with like, you know, just the store-bought cakes. And she was like, I could do better than this. And so she just like went to some bakery and was like, please teach me how to decorate cakes. And so these people, you know, taught her how to do all the like special icing and like all that kind of stuff. Um, And so when I was old enough, you know, late elementary school, whatever it was, um, she's like, I'm going to teach you so you can do this later on. And so I uh, learned how to make all the cakes. So every celebration the school ever had, I made a cake for and decorated. Nice. Um, and that has definitely uh, continued on to work as well. So, you know, if someone has like a birthday party or something at work, I, I make the cake. That's cool. So, you know, is it like those little um, raw icing cakes or is it like soft icing piping type of decoration? Yeah, I do all the like hand piping, all that kind of stuff. So mm. I have a lot of the cake pans that do, you know, the shaped cakes. So I have like an astronaut one and a Wally one and r 2 d one, of course, and, you know, a couple different styles. Um, I think my favorite one is actually a Christmas tree. Um, and I'll get all the little like sugar decorations of like little nutcrackers and stars and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, that, that one I think is my favorite. You can do like coconut on the bottom of snow yeah. and then, um, you know, use the different icing tips. You can have the garland in different colors and um, you can use M's and M's to be the little like ball ornaments and you can put them on and all that kind of stuff. So that's usually my favorite to decorate. Oh, that's amazing. That's such a cool hobby. Like just being able to work with your hands and doing all that kind of stuff. It's cool. And mm-hmm. yeah, and you, you know, sort of related but unrelated, you also do a lot of cosplay for Rebel Legion. Yeah. So uh, as you can see behind me here, some of my costumes <gasps> actually on mannequins. Yes, yeah, that's so, awesome. Yeah. So I typically cosplay as Rey um, yep. from the new Star Wars movies. Um, but I also have a Jedi that I do as well. And then nice. non-Star Wars related, um, I've done like 13th Doctor from Doctor Who. Oh, um, very cool. Gosh, what else have I done? Um, I'm trying to think of what, what else in my closet. Now <laughs> 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 I, no, I can't think of any of the others off my top of my head, but I have a lot of other like cosplays and, and things. Um, another fun one I've done is a Doctor Who Star Wars crossover. Yeah. And so. Nice. Um, you know, the fourth doctor has this particular scarf that he likes to wear. Yes. And so um, I did a Ray cosplay, but I had her arm sleeves instead of it being like the bandage wraps was actually fourth doctor theme wraps. Oh, that's I nice. have his scarf as her like cross tabard, yeah. you know, things on the front. Um, and I'm working on making a Dalek cosplay for my R2. So he'll be oh, able to wonderful. join me when I do that costume. Oh, that would be I such a cool made it, like, a bad cosplay so it's just like cardboard and foam balls with like a plunger tied to his arm (laughs) tied to the other one um yeah so it's like clear it's r2 cosplaying as a dog (laughs) 
there's other R2 builders that have made, made like shells that kind of like snap on to their R2. So it looks yeah. like a real Dalek. But I'm like, that's not the fun part. I want him to cost. No, the fun part. Yeah. You want him to look like he's giving it a good hard try. <laughs> exactly. That's nice. So you make a lot of the, do you make all of your costumes yourself? So I am definitely not talented in sewing. Um, so <laughs> I get these commissioned by very oh. talented friends. Um, but there oh, are a couple cool. pieces I've got scrolling over uh to, like <laughs> raise patterns on on this particular costume yeah. um that's just a piece of fabric that i bought cut in half and dyed um, <laughs> so you know that's not a very intense uh part um yeah what else did i do? um the staff um even though i didn't make the staff itself um yeah. i had to like uh attach it better um the way it was attached made it very loose and so i had to yeah. do some uh, machine work there to to get it to you know stay together better um that's cool i think it like, yeah, various things um yeah i love so, it yeah that's cool <laughs> cool and is that a porg i see in the background oh yeah i have a a, a cardboard cut out of uh porgs that are to do let me see if i can roll it ah down. So, <laughs> is that you so that's your r2 yes obsessed with porgs so uh oh, that's so cute yep oh and did i see that you were writing a paper on porgs ah uh, yes <laughs> so, tell me about uh, that one of my favorite that i've done so far um is for a while i was in charge of training on perseverance and one of the things we wanted to develop was simulations where um a lot of the way that you train on how to operate Mars rovers, not just the rover planners, but any other role is to what we call shadow other people where you sit in the chair next to them, you know, first you just watch and then eventually you start doing little tasks that, you know, they'll kind of scroll over, let you do it. You know, you move back until you're the one running it while they're just watching you. Yeah. But it takes a long time um, to train that way. And so we wanted to do training simulations that were similar to how Johnson Space Center trains their flight controllers for the International Space Station, the astronauts um, for their flights. And so um, one of the first things when I took this training job was they said, you know, here's this idea for simulations, you need to like run with it. Um, and make it some sort of like official name. Um, and I had a and they knew me very well. So one of the team members, <laughs> the acronym has to be PORG, and we'll back figure out what the acronym is based on that. I um, love how so nerdy all of you are. <laughs> we finally some practical operational readiness gambits. And so uh, even though we haven't really implemented them on 2020, because I transitioned to this helicopter role instead, um, on Curiosity, you know, we were training this new set of rover drivers and yeah. they were supposed to start these shadow shifts in April. How were we going to do that remote? Because we were all still struggling at that point, figuring out how do you, you know, have the two meetings or everything going on. And so we didn't want to have any trainees on shift because that would just make it even more complicated. And so I said, well, I've got this training simulation idea. Do you want to, can I just run with it? And so a couple weeks after lockdown started, I started running these sims every Thursday and they have been a huge help nice. in preparing our new trainees. And so now that, you know, we've kind of figured out what we're doing, getting settled into the remote ops um, regime. Uh, we've actually started letting the trainees on shift now. And so uh, folks have been really impressed because normally yeah. they come in, they have no ops experience because most of the time it's, you know, robotics people who aren't used to like operating the rovers. They're used to like building robots. Right. And 
Um, so a lot of the experienced <sighs> river drivers are like, oh my gosh, they actually know like what the meetings are and they know how to like log in and, you know, they know what to present at the meetings, like, you know, because we'd simulate it all and we practice and we practice and we practice. And so that's been pretty satisfying. And so there's a conference coming up in March where um, the curiosity team said, why don't you write a paper about these porgs and submit it? And so uh, the word porg is in it 101 times, which <laughs> I'm very happy. <laughs> so, um, that's, you know. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> Can't wait to see the proceedings, just like porgs in the headline. <laughs> so, you, uh, so you'll be presenting that? Yeah, so it's going to be a virtual conference. Um, so I will uh, be virtually presenting about porgs, and I promise I will stick a like picture of a porg somewhere in a slide. Yes. It's like a hidden must, you know. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> okay, and next one: which childhood book holds the strongest memories for you? Gosh, that would be really hard because you know I was always kind of the shy nerd growing up so I pretty much spent all my time in libraries reading books yeah. um I would say probably the biggest impact book I would say is probably the Lord of the Rings series I was mm. actually a lot more into like the fantasy quest wizard style books um growing up instead of the more like high hard sci-fi uh kind of books and so um I remember for one of my birthdays, a friend got me like this gigantic copy. It was all three Lord of the Rings books in one. So it's like this big. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I remember reading it very passionately. And then, of course, very shortly after I finished reading that, they announced that they were going to do, you know, Peter Jackson's uh, trilogy. Yeah. Um, and so that was pretty fun to like read it and then immediately go see it in the movies kind of thing. Oh, that's um, wonderful. Yeah. So that's that's the one that like stands out in my mind. What was your favorite part about the trilogy, about, you know, the story and, you know, how it kind of made you feel about it? I guess kind of the, the quest for hope, right? Like, even at the darkest hour, there's still hope. Um, I'm seeing a thread yeah. here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wonder how that relates to Star Wars and any other. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it doesn't have to be the, the best, biggest, you know, person right it's it's the common yeah. person that can save the day that's kind of a, a nice overarching theme as well yeah that's a good theme <laughs> and lastly what advice would you give someone who would like to do what you do or what advice should they ignore yeah so my favorite piece of advice to give is don't be afraid to talk to someone who's doing something you're interested in um whether it's you know you're in high school and you're starting to look at universities you can email professors um, I found typically the worst thing they will do is just ignore your email. And typically that doesn't even mean that they're ignoring you. It just means that stream of emails, like, yeah. you know, they haven't, it, so feel free to send again if you haven't heard a response in a while. Because most people, if they're working on something, they're pretty passionate about it. And so the fact that they have someone interested, they're like, oh yeah, of course I want to tell you all about it because I'm really excited about this thing. Yeah. So, I mean, had I not sent that email to this professor, you know, at university, would I have ended up in this? I don't know, right? Yeah. Um, so don't be afraid to talk to others. And I would also say, feel free to explore topics. So, you know, when I was not really sure what I wanted to do space-wise, meteorology-wise, anything like that, even in college, I still was kind of unsure. Like I knew this space stuff was kind of cool, but how did I want to proceed with it? And so I actually worked in the astronomy department for a little while on the Hubble Space Telescope doing some mm. research there. And I found that I absolutely hated it. 
Like I love, <laughs> I love looking through my own telescopes, you know, going out in the desert or wherever it is, looking up stuff. Um, I love working on Mars. Don't care about stars at all. <laughs> Any, anything related to the research of stars, I'm just like, I'm out. I'm done. Um, you know, so don't be afraid to like experiment. You know, you may find this may be interesting reading about it, but when you're actually doing it, you're like, not thanks. It had nothing to do with like the professor. He was great. You know, <laughs> it was everything. It just, it just wasn't for me. And so I think that's a good way, you know, whether it's internships or just like trying to work in a lab at university, whatever it is, um, you know, don't be afraid to also like back out if you don't yeah. like it. That's definitely a good one. Yep. What did you not like about the Hubble stuff, like specifically? You know, I'm still just trying to figure that out because it wasn't <laughs> that different from what I was doing with my Mars yeah. stuff. It was like looking at Hubble images and doing image analysis to look at like the brightness of stars. Well, my entire master's thesis is looking at the brightness of stars and pictures from Mars. Yes. <laughs> so I don't know. Um, Something about it, the context. Just, yeah. I maybe just like I understood more about what I was doing for the Mars side and less about what I was doing for Hubble because I didn't understand like I was looking more at variable stars and I didn't yeah. understand variable stars in the way that I understood like the Martian atmosphere so maybe that's part of it if I had actually like spent more time researching you know stars maybe I wouldn't have been that bad um <laughs> I don't know <laughs> yeah that's cool yeah just just something about it <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Kerry, for speaking with me today. It's been, yeah, absolutely mind-blowing learning about all the cool stuff you do, all the stuff that you're super passionate about, and, yeah, really feeling that, you know, kindred spirits being such huge nerds. So that's cool. <laughs> um, so if people would love to reach out to you, learn more about you and your work, where can they do that? So I'm pretty active on Twitter and Instagram as Planetary Kerry, and that's K-E-R-I. Um, I just like the rhyme as well. Nice. yes um and then i also have a website carriebean.com fantastic thank you so much for that and yeah it's been wonderful having you on and good luck with the projects and the landing in february and yeah have a wonderful day Great. thank you learning about the rover missions has been brilliant and it's been fascinating to get a little insight into how the technical and operational work for projects of this scale are coordinated earthside and now remotely it's also tickled me to learn how Carrie has been able to combine her love of Star Wars with her work at NASA in so many ways. To learn more about Carrie and what we discuss on the show or to connect with us, please visit the Steam Powered website at steampoweredshow.com. You can also reach out to Carrie on Twitter and Instagram under Planetary Carrie, that's K-E-R-I, and her website, the links for which will be in the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation and want to hear more like it, subscribe to this podcast and share this with your geeky or geek-curious friends. You can also support Steam Powered on Patreon and Ko-fi under Steam Powered Show, the links for which will also be in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>